Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to look at Isaiah, uh, specifically we're going to read Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 16, and I'll ask that you are able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's word today. Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 16, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if, if you haven't been here for the last uh, three Sundays, we've been going through a, a four-week of an Advent sermon series called The Promise of Christmas. And what we've been doing is taking a look at, certainly not all of them, there's too many for us to do that, but taking a look at just a number of the, the, the greater Old Testament uh, prophecies and promises of the coming of the Savior, the, the, for, the foretelling of the, the, of the promise of Christ's coming, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we saw a few weeks ago, the first one was Genesis 3.15. We looked at that, uh, that promise from that that was actually part of the curse on the serpent. And in the midst of that curse, God gave the very first promise of the Redeemer, of Christ. He was the one that was going to be the seed of the woman that was foretold. And what was the seed of the woman to do? He was to crush the head of the serpent, that ancient enemy of God's people. We looked a couple weeks ago at Deuteronomy 18:15. not a normal Christmas text uh, for most of us, but that's where, where Moses told the people of Israel that God, the Lord, was going to do what? He was going to raise up for the people a prophet like Moses uh, from among them, from among their brothers, and to him they had, they had to listen. And, you know, what we saw is, you know, you might be tempted to think it was Joshua, the one that was next up in line, but it really wasn't. We, we look at Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 3, um, we find, or in Acts 3, the Apostle Peter tells us that that was fulfilled not by Joshua, but by Christ himself. He was the prophet, the prophet like Moses. Moses wasn't just a prophet among many. He was head and shoulders above all the Old Testament prophets because he didn't just speak the word of the Lord. What did he do? God used Moses to deliver his people from slavery, to redeem. He was the redeemer of the Old Testament, in a sense. Well, in that way, Christ is the prophet like Moses and a prophet greater than Moses. He's the one that reveals God to sinners uh, greater than any prophet in the Old Testament ever, ever did. Well, last Sunday we looked at, at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that's the we're often called the Davidic covenant, God's promise to King David. And what did God promise David? He promised David that when, you're, when you die, you know, when you lie down with your fathers and go the way of man, what would happen? God would, same phrase, raise up for David, what? His offspring or his seed after him, and what would that offspring do that, that, that seed, that son of David was going to build a house for the name of the Lord. 
And on top of that, God tells David that he was going to establish the throne of his kingdom, this, this son of David. God was going to establish his throne forever. And so, you know, you're at first blush, if you if you're, don't already know the end of the story, when you read on, what do you think it's going to be? Who do you think it's going to be? Solomon. Solomon's the son of David. Solomon, you know, succeeds David as the king of Israel. It's kind of the glory days, at least for a time, of, of Israel's kingdom. What does Solomon do? David didn't get to build the temple, but Solomon did. So he built a house, in some way, the house for the name of the Lord. But did that house for the name of the Lord, was that the ultimate house that, that God was promising? No. In fact, it's a good thing it's not, because where is it now? It doesn't even exist now. It hasn't existed for a long, long time, since A.D. 70. And that wasn't even the first time it was destroyed, the temple of God. And not only that, did Solomon reign forever? Does anybody know Solomon's address right now? Is he, is he reigning on a throne somewhere in Jerusalem? He's not. But there is a king that was promised to David, and it wasn't Solomon. Primarily, it was Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who was a son of David, but one greater than David. He's the one that God said would be a son to himself. Remember in that, that passage, he says, he will be a son to me, and I will be to him a father. Now, sometimes kings... You know, we, we tend to, to be um, exaggerating the importance of kings. Kings sometimes took the title of son of God or sons of the gods to kind of exaggerate their own importance. They, you know, kings, important people have a tendency to build statues to themselves while they're alive. Uh, they, want, they want all the glory. Well, that prophecy wasn't that kind of a thing. It was, it was that this king that was to come was going to be the son of God himself, the actual son of God, the one that all the earthly kings pretend uh, and pretend to be like well we could we could spend weeks and weeks picking other Old Testament prophecies and, and, and promises that foreshadowed the coming of, of Christ and promises coming ahead of time but this morning I thought we'd look at one that's often tied to Christmas with good reason and that's Isaiah chapter 7 there the Lord tells his prophet speaks through the prophet Isaiah and he promises that he would give a sign Isaiah 7 14. And what was, that, what was the sign that God was going to give? It's an odd sign. It's a strange sounding sign. In Isaiah 7.14 he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You probably know already that this, this is quoted in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew, as we're going to see, tells us that, that this prophecy that God gives through Isaiah is fulfilled in the birth uh, of Christ. Now rather than go Write to Matthew's Gospel and kind of backtrack from there. I thought we'd take a little bit of a different uh, course this morning, and I thought it might be good for us to examine uh, the, the Old Testament passage that Matthew quotes, Isaiah chapter 7. And I thought what we would do is we'd look first at the background of the promised sign of, of Emmanuel, the background of that promise, what, what led up to it, what was happening when God gave it. Secondly, we're going to look at the promised sign of Emmanuel himself, the actual promise, and finally we're going to look at, Lord willing, the fulfillment of the promised sign of Emmanuel and the birth of Jesus Christ that first Christmas morning. So the background, the first thing we're going to see is the background of this promise. Now, uh, you know, what, what, what's the, what do pastors always say? The context is key in interpretation. Now, the background for Isaiah 7, our passage, isn't just the verses that come right before it, although those verses certainly do tell us a lot about what was happening directly before this promise was, was given. So we're going to look at Isaiah 7, 1 through 9, but we're also going to look in the previous chapters as well. 
I think the entire first six chapters plus the beginning of chapter seven are kind of important for us to grasp what was going on, why is Isaiah even there, what was, that, what was Ahaz's situation uh, that caused him uh, this to even uh, be promised to him by God. Now, Israel at this time, it's the divided kingdom, right? Solomon is, is long gone from the scene. You have Israel now divided between the ten kingdoms of the north, often called Israel or even Ephraim in our text. You have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, which still has the capital of Jerusalem. And you have kings from the different tribes in, in the north, and you have kings from the line of David still ruling from Jerusalem uh, in, in the south, reigning there in Jerusalem. Now the people of Judah, the people of Judah like Israel, uh, Judah was no better in some ways than Israel was. It wasn't like the ten, the ten tribes were, were all bad, but Judah was, was remaining you know, completely faithful or anything like that. Israel and Judah both had rebelled against the Lord. Verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 of Isaiah's prophecy mentions rebellion. I mean, the, the second verse in the entire book, and God says his people, even in Jerusalem, had rebelled against him. That's a, a pretty, that should be a shocking thing for us to hear. If the Lord were to come to this church you know, this morning and say, you've all rebelled against me, that would be very hard to hear. Well, that's the, almost the first thing out of Isaiah's mouth is his people, his children that he had raised were a rebellious, a rebellious children to him. Not only that, verse 4 of chapter 1 says they had forsaken the Lord. They've rebelled against their, their heavenly father. They've forsaken him. They followed after other gods. And what was God going to do? He was going to chastise his children by sending foreign invaders. It's, it, that's how you understand most of the prophets in the Old Testament. God chastising his people for their rebellion, calling them to repentance, often sending invading armies and things, even exile, uh, to, to, to get them back, to call them to repentance. Well, the people in Israel, the people in Judah, were, were guilty of wickedness. As we're going to see, they were guilty of idolatry. And yet, what did they do? You know, we would tend to think that if you're committing wickedness, and if you're committing you know, false religion, idolatry, that you would just kind of leave off uh, the worship of the Lord. You would kind of drift off into the things. Well, that sometimes happens in our day, possibly. But what was, what was the case in Isaiah's day in Judah, in Jerusalem? Did they stop going to the temple? Did the sacrifices in the temple cease? Did they stop lifting up prayers to God? Did they stop observing the feast days and the new moons and the Sabbaths? No, they, they did what they were going to do. And then, like they thought, maybe they thought it was the cherry on top. They just kept right along offering sacrifices in the temple as they were supposed to do, offering up their prayers, observing feast days, observing Sabbath days, just like nothing was wrong. Business as usual is what they were doing uh, in, in the temple. So far, so good, they, they thought. But what, did God, what was God's verdict on that? What's God's verdict on hypocritical living and trying to mix that with worshiping the Lord? We'll look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 20. I'll read the whole thing uh, this morning. Isaiah 1, 10 to 20. This is God's response. He gives a rebuke. He gives a call to repentance, an offer of forgiveness, amazing as it sounds, and then a warning for those who refuse to repent. It says, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord. He's talking to the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. There's a way to start a letter. 
right? Uh, what, is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? They were still offering the sacrifices that they were supposed to, quote unquote, offer. What is the multitude uh, to me? The multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the, bull, in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of you? This trampling of my courts. Bring no more, what does he call it? Vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot, verse 12, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. That's what they were doing. The, the whole book of Isaiah, you could say, is, is understood, the sin of the people, in mixing or trying to mix iniquity and solemn assembly. Now, we all sin. We all struggle with sin. There's a reason we have a prayer of confession every Sunday. There's a reason the Lord's Prayer says, you know, what does it say? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are always going to have sins to confess in this life. Until you are home with the Lord in heaven, uh, we will have sins to confess, the need of forgiveness. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people living as if they don't even know the Lord. They're professing faith and living as if they had no knowledge of God whatsoever. They were combining iniquity and solemn assembly. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul, hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing, of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, that's, that's in prayer, when you spread out your hands and I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's saying, you guys keep bringing all these offerings. You keep, and you keep praying. You're not stopping praying. I mean, give them credit for that much, I guess. But, and what does he say? I'm not going to listen. Because they were mixing iniquity with solemn assembly. He says here, a call to repentance. Wash, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's pretty hard words. Hard words followed by an amazing call to repentance and an offer of forgiveness. You know, it, it's a good thing that we're not God. If we were God, it would stop before wash yourselves. Isaiah would be a very short book. God's, God's perseverance and, and long-suffering with his people uh, is, is amazing for us to, to read when you read through the book of Isaiah. And even then, even the, this recalcitrant, unrepentant, hardened, rebellious people, God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He's offering forgiveness if they repent. He's offering and calling them to repentance, offering them forgiveness. Even after all they had done, he doesn't just let the hammer fall. Now, that's kind of hard to hear some of it, mixing iniquity and solemn assembly and what does God say? God says, oh, he'll have none of it. It's an insult to his holiness. It's in, you know, throughout Isaiah, you'll see the, something like this, where they're not treating God as holy. That's the, that's the complaint that God gives through his prophet. They aren't treating him as, as holy as he is. They're not thinking of him as being holy. And yet, you know, even for all that, God calls them to repentance. He offers forgiveness and restoration. He even offers them that they'll eat of the fat of the land. 
rather than exile, if they repent, they'll enjoy the good of the land. It's a pretty amazing promise. Now, that's the state of things in Judah in Isaiah's day. That's the background of what's going on. That's the background of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, we look fast forward to chapter 6 of Isaiah's prophecy, one chapter before our text this morning. And what's in chapter 6? Many of you probably had this text buried in your hearts and minds. As soon as I say Isaiah chapter 6, you think of Isaiah's vision of the Lord. What does it say? It says that the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of the Lord himself. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Isaiah, I, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's hard to even picture that in your head, what Isaiah was seeing, and how frightened he was at seeing it. You know, when I was, when I was a kid along many, many, many years ago, uh, the only time I ever heard woe was in a show called Hee Haw. They had a song, Doom, Despair, you know, woe is me, that kind of a thing. And so I thought, I thought woe was funny. I thought that woe is me was kind of a humorous thing. And what he's pronouncing, when a prophet says woe, it's a message of destruction. It's, it's the guilty verdict. It's saying the hammer's about to fall. Judgment is, the judgment of a holy God is about to fall upon whoever the woe is pronounced against. And who does he pronounce the woe against? Himself. Woe, woe is me isn't, you know, I'm having a bad day. I had a bad vision. I'm kind of, you know, a little shook up. He's saying, I'm about to be destroyed. I'm about, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm finished, I'm destroyed, I'm a goner. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. He, what's the vision reminding Isaiah of? Before God calls him to be a prophet, that the king died, but the, the real king isn't dead at all. Isaiah may be off, off the scene, maybe removed from the scene, but the real king is the Lord. The king's not dead, he's very much alive. The real king is ruling. The real king, the Lord, is infinite in power and glory, and he cannot be made to fit inside of any box, not even the temple. That's part of what that vision is telling us. The train of his robe. You ever been to a wedding, and the, the bride has a long train of, of her gown trailing behind? That's the train of the robe, the, the hind part of, of the garment. And what does Isaiah's vision show? The train of the robe, the hem of the garment, maybe, fills the temple. You know, God said, well, even when Solomon, you know, commissioned the temple, what did, what did he say? You know, Lord, I'm paraphrasing, basically, no, no, no house, you don't dwell in houses made with hands. No house could possibly contain the infinite God. Well, Isaiah gets a little vision of that, just a little glimpse of what that may have, have looked like. And then he's told that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, as any sinner in his right mind would do when faced with something like that, even a mere glimpse of God's glory and the awesome majesty and holiness of, of God. What, is Isaiah, what, what happens to Isaiah? What does he think of? Isaiah becomes very much aware of his own sin. He becomes very much aware that God is holy, 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 and he himself is not, that he has no 
ability to stand in the presence of a holy God on his own. In fact, so much so that he pronounces a woe upon himself. God is holy, I am not. I am not fit to be in the presence of a holy God. I'm about to be destroyed. And so he awaits his condemnation. You have to think that's what Isaiah is expecting. He's expecting God to, to, to drop uh, the, the sickle of judgment upon him. And so, but what happens? What's the next thing that happens to Isaiah in this vision? One of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, takes a burning coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice and atonement, takes it and touches his lips. Where was the location of his sin? I'm a man of unclean lips, and as if that weren't bad enough, everywhere I look, I'm paraphrasing, is other people of unclean lips. I can't get away from the sin no matter where I go. I'm dead. But he takes that coal, touches his lips, and says, this is the best news any sinner could ever hear. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You are now right with God. You are a man of unclean lips, but your lips now have been cleansed. Your guilt is removed from you. It's been paid for by sacrifice. And your, tone, your sin has been atoned for. Now, what happens next is the call of Isaiah the prophet. God says, okay, whom shall I send? Who can go for us? And what does Isaiah now do? This man who was just pronouncing a woe upon himself for his unclean lips now says, here am I, send, send me. He'll go. So far, so good, right? This is, uh, so far, it's a, it's a good story. But what did God tell him about his task as a prophet? You're going to have a hard time, Isaiah. They're not, they're, they're not going to listen. In fact, they're going to get worse when you preach to them. That's really what he tells them. It's kind of a frightening thing. You know, if I, when I was ordained, if my charge had been Isaiah 6, I would have been uh, very discouraged to have Isaiah's call. It says in Isaiah 6, 9 to 13, it says, He said, go, God said, go and say to this people, here's your message, Isaiah, you're ready to go. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, that's repent, and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? In other words, how long do I have to keep doing this? How long? Is, there's got to be a part two, right? How long is this message of them not listening going to go? How long, O Lord, he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In other words, exile is going to come. They're not going to repent the things that you fear happening in some ways are going to happen. God is going to carry his people off into exile. You almost wonder if you were there, if you could see it, you know, would you be, you know, still want to volunteer? You know, still want to keep your hand up, Isaiah? You still want to go or you want to look around for a backup, a backup prophet? He, you know, he's told ahead of time they're not going to listen. You're going to go, you're going to speak for me, the holy, holy, holy God, the Lord God Almighty they weren't going to listen. Their hearts were going to become hardened to the point where judgment was finally going to come and they'd be carried off into exile in a foreign land. But there would remain a remnant, a stump, a holy seed that would continue the line of promise. God's promises couldn't be broken. God cannot, cannot lie. God was still going to continue the, the line of the promise of the Messiah to come. And that Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, you might remember, 
when he spoke the parables in the Gospels, what does he quote when they ask him, you know, the disciples say, why do you speak in parables? What does he say? He quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. That keep on hearing and but, but do not understand. You know, that they may ever be hearing and not understanding and seeing but not perceiving. That's why he spoke the parables to them. He takes the language of Isaiah, even of Isaiah's call, and applies it to himself. Well, that brings us to our chapter, Isaiah chapter 7 in our text. Now, think about what, he, what Isaiah was just told about his message and about what the result of that message was going to be. Who's the first example in Isaiah of those who would hear the word of the Lord and not believe and not understand, see and not perceive, hear and not understand, and not turn and be healed? It's King Ahaz, the king himself. He doesn't get to you know, start off slow and talk to somebody in town. He gets sent straight to the king. Straight to the king himself, who's out checking on his defenses at the, where the water supply is. He's got enemies coming to, to besiege the town of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And he's taking upon his own wisdom and own ways to try to set up defenses. He's trying to find other ways other than trusting in God to defend uh, the city. Chapter 7, uh, verse, uh, verse 1, he says that there's a new uh, threat of attack at Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim is the, the northern kingdom. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Remember in Isaiah 6, the threshold of the, of the, of the temple shook, and then Isaiah's knees shook, apparently. Well, now we have something else shaking. We have King Ahaz and all the people around him, when they hear of the enemy that's coming, this threat... They're not fearing God, they're fearing the threat. And their hearts shook like the trees shake before the wind. Now, in all fairness, I'd, I'd be afraid too. If the news when you got home today said, that, you know, pick a, a, a bad country, it was, about, was, was lining up at our shores and ready to invade, you'd be rightly concerned. He wasn't crazy to be fearful in that way, but he wasn't fearing God, and that's mainly what the problem, what the problem was. Now, the Lord sends his prophet to the king. And what's his message to the prophet is don't fear. Don't fear this thing that you're, that you're fearing. Don't fear Syria and Ephraim or Israel. And what does God call them in verse 4? He calls them smoldering stumps. There's that word again. Smoldering stumps of firebrands. They think they're this great burning torch that's going to run through uh, Jerusalem and, and you know, throw you off the throne, take over the place, annex it to the northern kingdom, Unite, unite the kingdoms back together under a wicked ruler. But what does God call them? Smoldering stumps of firebrands. You know, it's like that piece of wood in the fire that's almost out. It's still smoking. It's got a little bit of a glow to it. You know, you don't touch it, but you're not afraid of it. It's almost out. Its glory is gone. The height of its flame is past. Who were they to withstand the Lord himself, who would be Israel's, Judah's protector? Who are they to stand before God? They were nothing. God's saying, you see them, you're forgetting me. They're not the Lord of hosts. They're little sticks that are burning up in the fire and are almost out. What are you worried about them for when you have me? They're nothing before me. The Lord tells the king in verse 7 that their plans would not come to pass. He doesn't just say, don't fear, I've got this. He says, don't fear, I've got this. And the thing they're threatening is not going to happen. It's not. I'm telling you through my prophet, it's not going to come to pass. 
It's not going to come past until he says within 65 years, verse 8, within 65 years, in fact, Israel would no longer even exist as a people. That's Ephraim, the northern kingdoms, the northern tribes. They're not even going to exist anymore. You see them as this big threat. They're almost gone. They're certainly not going to be a threat to your throne after this. And then he says in verse 9, and this is kind of God's gospel call to King Ahaz, the call to repentance and faith. He says, if you are not firm in faith, remember he's shaking, right? He's, it's, it's kind of play on words. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. There's one way out of this, and it's not whatever you're devising. It's me. If you don't trust me and do what I say, things are not going to go well. And I think the King James Version puts it a little bit better, although the ESV kind of preserves the play on words in the Hebrew. But the King James says this, If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. In other words, your, your reign as king, if you're not going to trust me and believe, Your, your reign is not going to be established. It's not going to last very long. You have to trust me and do what I say. Ahaz must believe. He's called by God here to believe, but does he believe? No. He must trust God rather than leaning on his own understanding. If he refused to believe and trust God, his own reign was not going to be established. It was going to be short-lived. Now Ahaz, what was Ahaz doing here? Ahaz was plotting to try to get Assyria, which he should not have been doing, to help him. He was plotting, as his people always seem to do, earthly allegiances that, for rescue. Rather than looking to God, they try to do what seems right in their own eyes. They look to other mighty nations like Egypt, Assyria, and elsewhere. And that always comes back to bite them. So God's telling him, don't do that. Trust me, I will get you out of this. But you have to believe me. Now, God doesn't just tell him. Think about how gracious God is to this rebellious king. God tells him, don't fear. I'm here. Sends his prophet to, to tell him you know, all these things. Tells him that what, what your enemies are plotting is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They're threatening it. They're telling you they're going to come in and take over Jerusalem. Not going to happen. In fact, they're going to cease to exist, not you. Jerusalem is not going to cease to exist, but they are. In verses 10 to 12, listen to what Isaiah says to, to Ahaz. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds very pious, doesn't it? Are you supposed to put the God, you know, God to the test? No, in fact, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan what, did, what did Satan, what did Jesus answer back at one of those temptations? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy. But God offered Ahaz a sign. Ahaz wasn't on his own without God's knowledge or permission or command requesting a sign and then changing his mind. God offered him a sign, any sign he wanted. Think about that. If God asked you that, what would you ask for? If God, you know, if you were wavering in your faith in God's promise and God said, okay, I'll give you any sign you want. Pick what, it could be as high as heaven or as, as deep as Sheol. Pick whatever sign you want. What would you pick? Isaiah, or King Ahaz could have asked for the sun to be darkened. He could have asked, as happened in the Old Testament elsewhere, he could have, he could have asked for the sun to stay still, for it to stop dead in its tracks in the sky. And God would have done it. And yet he refused To ask, one writer says, God hands him a blank check 
but Ahaz refuses to cash it. Why? He doesn't want to trust God. I would add, he doesn't trust God already. He doesn't trust him and he doesn't want to trust him. He wants to trust in Assyria. He wants to trust in his own wisdom, his own way of doing things. So Ahaz rejects the kindness of the Lord, refuses to trust in him, but he does so under a pretense of piety. Oh, I don't want to be tempting the Lord. I don't want to test the Lord. Is it testing the Lord if God tells you to ask for a sign? No, it's, it's testing the Lord to not. Now, Jesus said, you know, wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. We're not supposed to seek signs. But if God ever tells you to ask for one, you do what he tells you. And Ahaz, the king, refused to do that. Now, you might know that the word sign there, the same word in Isaiah 7 for sign, is elsewhere used in the Old Testament for all kinds of things that should get your attention. The sign of the covenant of circumcision. That was the sacrament that, that relates to baptism in our day. The word sign is used of that. It's a sign. God, it's God's sign, his act of kindness to his people to confirm their faith in his promise of the Redeemer in Christ. The, the rainbow. Remember the flood of Noah and the rainbow? The rainbow was the sign of God's covenant that he would no, never again destroy the world with, with water. The, the Passover lamb. The word, same word for sign is used in that regard. So when you think about it, you know, I, I asked you, would, what, what sign would you ask for? God has given you signs. Did you know that? We're not going to have them here this morning. God has given us in the church, in, our, in the church age, two signs. Same, and what are they? The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are they given to you for? Now, they're not as, as impressive as asking for something as high as the heaven as far as our own outward senses are concerned. But they're given to confirm and strengthen our faith in God's promise. Think about the grace of God that he not only gives us his word, just as he today has, that we can trust in his word. God's promises cannot fail. He condescends to our weaknesses in giving us signs on top of it to confirm and strengthen our faith in his word. But Ahaz here rejects the sign. He despises the sign that God offers because he has no intention of trusting God. That's the, that's the context here of our passage in Isaiah 7. Now, that brings us to the promised sign itself or the promise of the sign. What is the Lord's response to the unbelief and hardness of heart of King Ahaz? God's been pretty patient up to this point. God didn't have to send Isaiah at all, did he? He, he, knew, he knew full well what, what Ahaz had planned and what he intended, but he sent his messenger to him in mercy. Anyway, in verses 13 to 17, that's most of our text, it says this, He, that's the Lord, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So Ahaz, in his unbelief, he stubbornly refused God's command to ask for a sign. So what happened? God gave him a sign anyway. God said, okay, you're not going to pick. I'm going to pick. Here's the sign that I'm going to give you. But notice here, it's hard to pick it up in the English in some ways. 
but it, there's a hint in verse 13 that he doesn't just address Ahaz, does he? What does he, what does he ref, ref, who does he refer to here? The house of David. And when he says that he'll give you a sign in verse 13, I know in English you can't see this, but it's no longer singular, it's plural. It's like God goes from talking to Ahaz to talking to everybody. He's not saying to Ahaz anymore, okay, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. He's like, I'm going to give you all a sign. Here's the sign that I, the Lord, am going, going to give you. Uh, so he's talking not just to Ahaz, but to the people and also, in a sense, to us as well. Now, often these kinds of statements, these signs that God gives, these promises, have a twofold fulfillment in one sense. And one fulfillment is a lesser fulfillment, kind of a typological, symbolic fulfillment in the, the nearer time uh, of its pronouncement. And then another one, which is the ultimate fulfillment, way off in the future from the time it's first, it's first given. The former is usually a type or a shadow of that fulfillment, and the ultimate fulfillment is much later. We saw that in the last few weeks, didn't we? We saw that, uh, for, for instance, God's promise to, to, through Moses to raise up a prophet like Moses, we would have been probably tempted to think it was, it was Joshua had we been there. Joshua is the one that takes the baton from Moses. He leads them into the promised land, very much like Moses. He, God uses Joshua in many ways, but is Joshua, whose name is a form of the name Jesus, actually, is he Jesus? No, he's Joshua. He's a, a form or a shape or a type, a shadow of the Christ that was to come. When God promises David that this, this son of his was going to sit on the throne forever and build him a house, it looks like Solomon. Who builds the temple? Solomon does. Who reigns after David? Solomon does. And his, you know, leaders from other nations came to Solomon to hear his wisdom. It looks like that's the one, but it really wasn't. What happens right after Solomon? The divided kingdom. And what does God tell Ahaz here that he was going to bring upon him and upon your people and upon your father's house? What? Verse, verse 17. Such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, departed from Judah. In other words, Something's going to happen here to you that's going to be the, the worst thing you've seen since the divided kingdom started. That was bad. This is going to be worse. This is going to be beyond what you imagine happening. Now, in this case, in Isaiah 7, uh, we don't really know what the immediate fulfillment may have been. Uh, if you look up commenta commentaries and scholars, they're very much divided over was there a child born in, in uh, Ahaz's time that was a fulfillment, not the fulfillment, but a fulfillment of this promise? Some people say that it was uh, spoken of here earlier in the chapter where God tells Isaiah to bring, in verse 3, he says to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son. Some say it's that child. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And what they, what they would try to say was that when God... Uh, gets done talking about Emmanuel, and then he starts to say, he shall eat curds and honey, that suddenly God changes the referent, and now it's, it's Isaiah's little, little boy, who may have been an infant at the time, or it may have been Isaiah's soon-to-be child, or it may have been Hezekiah. We don't, we don't know what the case was. We don't know of anything in the Old Testament where a child was born literally to a, a virgin in the Old Testament. We don't think that actually was what took place, but... Um, so we don't really know what, what might have been if there was a fulfillment in, in Ahaz's day. It may have been the case that he didn't give Ahaz a sign at all because of his refusal to do. But uh, So was there, was there a child in, in Ahaz's day, in Isaiah's day, that was born, maybe not miraculously, but 
you know, kind of a figure of speech of a virgin having given birth to, to a child. We don't know, but that child, whoever it may have been, their early years were set as kind of a time clock, kind of flipping over the, the egg timer, so to speak, for the destruction of Syria and Israel. That before a child just born is of the age of what we call the age of discretion or understanding, Syria and Israel were going to be overthrown. That's what God is in, in the nearer time sense uh, talking of here. God was going to bring Assyria. He tells, calls them by name, right? Assyria, the very nation who may has thought that he was going to ally himself with for his own defense. He was going to bring Assyria on to Syria and Israel, but later on also against Judah as well. Now, what's the fulfillment? The fulfillment of this promised sign. When, when did it take place? You already know from, from the gospel readings from Matthew and Luke. 700 years later, this, this promise is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Look at Matthew 1, verses 18 to 23. Matthew 1, 18 to 23. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, well, while he's thinking about it, what happens? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. It's always that phrase when the angel shows up, right? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins and then what, is, what does Matthew add? All this took place to do what? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then what does he quote in case we didn't get the hint? Isaiah 7.14 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds the note for us. What, is it? what does Emmanuel mean? God with us, or God is with us. So Isaiah 7.14 foretells the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. The miraculous sign that, would, that was given, that was promised, was the sign of his birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that she would conceive and bear a son. Now, how, how does this happen? How does a virgin conceive? Uh, you know, unbelievers would say, well, it doesn't happen. There has to be some other explanation. Uh, various scholars have tried to monkey with the word virgin in the Old Testament text, and they try, to say, they try to say that it can be used of other things, and it really doesn't require this to be a literal virgin. virgin. Uh, and yet, what, is, what does Mary herself say? In Luke one thirty one? she says, How will this be since I am a what? Virgin. You know, Mary, Mary knew the birds and the bees. She knew how things worked. And what is, but what does she say? How am I supposed to do that? I, I, I'm not, we're not married yet. You know, we're, we're kind of... Much, very much officially engaged where, where Joseph would have had to divorce her and break the engagement. But she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? What, did, what, did, what was she told? It says, the angel proclaimed to her, uh, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in the power of the Most High, will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Not Joseph's son, the Son of of God, That baby boy was going to be conceived supernaturally by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now notice what Matthew says again in verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill 
what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years later, it was, it was fulfilled to the, to the letter. Fulfilled completely in Christ. God's word cannot, cannot fail. And notice again, what was the son going to be called? Emmanuel, which means God with us. The child in the manger that we, you know, we, we saying, what child is this? Is God in the flesh. God with us. Isaiah said in his prophecy, really, that no less than God himself was going to be conceived in the virgin's womb. That's a mind-bending thing to think about, but that's what happened that first Christmas morning. And Matthew tells us again that, that the word means God with us. There's, there should be no confusion about the identity of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he is God in the flesh. Now, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Our confession, our shorter catechism, question 22, tells us this. It says, Christ, the Son of God, became man, how? By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without sin. Now, that may sound like an odd statement. A true body and a reasonable or rational soul. Why did, why did, why did they add that? They're saying he was really a, a human being. He didn't, he didn't just look like he became a man. He had a body and a soul. You and I have bodies and souls. Jesus became a man. He became God in the flesh, and he still is at the right hand of God the Father, the God-man. He's still our mediator, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us for our salvation. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the eternal and infinite Son of God, the Lord of glory, Becoming man, one person with two distinct natures forever. He's now fully God, truly God, and truly man. It's a mystery that we cannot comprehend with our finite minds. That's what we think about every year at this time. What a wonderful mercy of God that in the face of unbelief, wickedness of King Ahaz, what does he do? The Lord gives the promise of the King of Kings. You know, it's funny, it's kind of ironic in a good way. When you think of that first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. It's in the middle of a curse. God's cursing the serpent for his role in the fall of mankind. And in the midst of the curse, what does he do? He gives the gospel right in the middle of it. He does the same thing here in Isaiah chapter 7. King Ahaz is a wicked king. He doesn't believe in God. He rejects God. And what does God do? In the midst of, of casting judgment upon Ahaz and upon the people, he gives the gospel. He gives the message of the, of the king of kings, the one who was not like King Ahaz. King Ahaz was, was wicked, was faulty, did not trust in God. But there was going to be a king that came one day when Jesus was born that was rightly worshipped when he was in the manger. He was called king throughout his life from, from birth at that manger to even on the cross when they nailed that sign over his head on the cross. It said, Here, here's the king of the Jews. Everyone, whether believing or not, acknowledged that he was the king of kings and the king of, of, of the Jews of Israel. He's the true seed, the true son of David who would always do the will of his father. He's the king of kings who always rules his people righteously. He's the king of kings who redeems and delivers his people from all their enemies, including death, hell, and Satan himself. What an amazing sign of the grace of God in the gospel that we are reminded of every year around Christmas and other times as well. The son of God would humble himself to be born of a virgin, Paul says in Philippians 2 that, that he did this taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And all of that he did to save you and I from our sins. Jesus came, he was born the way he was into this world to save his people from our sins. It's our sin that is our greatest enemy. What was, what was the greatest enemy that Ahaz thought he had? Syria and Ephraim, his military enemies. He was terrified of them. He shook like the trees shaking by the wind. Our enemy is far worse than any earthly nation or king or army. Our sin is our greatest enemy. It's like Isaiah in chapter 6. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm surrounded by other people with the same problem. I've got nowhere to go. But Jesus saves us from that enemy, from our sin, greater than any earthly power. Are you trusting in Christ this morning? Are you trusting in him? Have you come to Jesus by faith that you might have forgiveness of all your sins and have eternal and abundant life in his name? That's the promise of Christmas, the real promise of Christmas, the gift of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and our Savior. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for every Sunday. We thank you for Christmas when we are reminded more and more over every year of the great gift of your son that that you gave us a sign that we could never have imagined. Ahaz never would have dreamed of asking for the sign of your son being born of a woman, a sign that we cannot comprehend in some sense that you gave him a sign just the way you described. It was a sign that was as high as the heaven and as deep, deep as Sheol, it's as high and as low as could possibly be. imagine that heaven came down to earth in the birth of your son, who took upon human flesh that he might live in our place, the perfect life that we have failed to live, that he might die for our sins, paying the penalty in full for all of our sin, that we might be forgiven, cleansed from guilt, and that have our sins atoned for, that we might be able to to, to safely and rightly approach you, the holy, holy, holy God of all creation, that we might know you and be able to be in your, your presence with great joy one day, all because of the work of Christ, your Son, our Savior, our great King of kings. We thank you that he is reigning over all things at your right hand, even right now for our benefit, that he is making all the nations a footstool for his feet, even his enemies. We thank you for all the things that he is doing, even now for our salvation. And we thank you that one day we will see him as he is and be made like him and give him all the glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.